Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Person of the Pnei Yeshua. If you're in Yeshiva and you don't know who I'm talking about, shame on you. But there are a lot of people that are not in Yeshivas and they're not so familiar with the Pnei Yeshua. He's a very interesting person. People know him from the books, but obviously very few know him from the history. Uh, the Pnei Yeshua, for those who don't know, was a big rabbi in the 1700s. Well, that doesn't do a lot for people. But he was a classic rabbi of the old school, the type that doesn't exist today. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. Nowadays, a rabbi is a rabbi of a shul, something like that. And he gives classes, and he makes speeches, and sermons, and speaks at bar mitzvahs, and brises, and visits the sick, and goes to funerals, all that kind of business. Forget that. In the old days, for many, many centuries, it's not what a rub was, and how business they used to call him. He used to be a rabbi of a community, not of a single synagogue, of a whole kill, small or large. And the job description was... You preside over the local basin, which actually runs by itself most of the time, and Paskin the hard childless. Plus, you sit and learn. You say, why would people pay somebody to come sit and learn? Our grandparents lived in a different world, and they thought that's a big deal. And when the person just sits and learns, he obviously they only want somebody who's that type. And it was understood that the best learning is with the yeshiva, and so the community, when they hired the rabbi, usually would say, We'll spring for a little yeshiva of 10, 15 guys, 20 guys maybe. And if you can raise money for others, that's you're on your own. And so every Al Basin of the old school, or most of them anyway, wore two hats. They were rabbi of a community in which they, like I said before, they paskin chilas and sat in basins and all that sort of thing. They didn't give speeches really. And they certainly didn't visit life cycle events. But on the same time, there was some kind of a rush yeshiva. See, a rabbi and a rush yeshiva, the yeshiva could be a small one, or if you were charismatic, you could attract many students, and that's how life was lived once upon a time. The Pnei Yeshua was one of those classic types, and in his capacity as a Rosh Hashiva, he hit the big time because he wrote the famous four-volume work, the Pnei Yeshua, which really took off in the Yeshiva world for many centuries, not so much today, but it's still around, um, and uh, is widely used, and uh, he's a very interesting personality because if you look at his biography, he was a rabbi in many places. When you see most of the time a biography of somebody who was a rabbi in many different communities, it means he was fired. And usually the reason a rabbi was fired is he wouldn't toe the line. But that means he wouldn't kiss up to the rich and the powerful in the community, and he called a spade a spade. And the rich people and the powerful people in those kahillas would then get so angry that they would kick the guy out, either formally or informally, but that's what would happen. And that is certainly what happened to Yeshua. Anytime he was in a town and he saw something that he thought wasn't right, he called it, and that was the end of him. So a very interesting type of personality. Why was he that type? In my opinion, it's because he was born to a rich and powerful family. In those days, the big rabbis, many of them came from elite families, in which there was a long tradition. The father, the grandfather, the grandfather were big time chachamim, and they would put a lot of time and effort into making the young kids grow up, if they had it in them, to become big time chachamim. And if the family played their cards right either through business investments or through marriages or that sort of thing, 
they would have what they call Torah Gadul B'makam Echad, meaning they'd be rich and they'd also be learned. And the Pnei Yeshua came from such a family in Krakow, born in 1681, I think it was, and he was 75 when he died, so that put him at 1756. And once you come in that kind of a family, you're not so overawed by the rich and the powerful. And indeed, he was married, I think, three times, and each time to rich and powerful family. In other words, he married a rich girl the first time, and then the second time, the, I think the third time. And therefore, at the end of the day, he did not need anybody financially. So if he told somebody what he thought of them and they kicked him out of town, big deal. He has the financial wherewithal behind him that he can handle that. So that made him a cantankerous individual if you did something that was wrong, because he would not shut up and, 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 and be quiet about it. Very interesting in that way. Now, um, specifically, in the case of Pei Yeshua, he got married the first time when he was like 20 or something like that. And as I said, to a rich and powerful family, a great girl, and they had a child, and the family even sort of like bought him his own private yeshiva. And he was a god so he was the real thing. And then came the famous story that many know about, or perhaps you don't know about it, the yeshiva had the misfortune of being located on the t- on the top of ammunition dump, a powder magazine, whereas he writes it, 100 barrels loaded with uh, gunpowder. And in those days, there were a lot of fires, because in Poland, this happened in Lemberg. In Poland and Eastern Europe in general, the one thing you have a lot of is wood, and so all, all buildings are made out of wood, and all you need is one Mrs. O'Leary's cow to turn over a uh, lamp, and next thing you know, the whole place goes up, and if you're sitting on top of a powder magazine... As he writes himself in the introduction to Yeshua, he was sitting and learning with the students, and next thing you know, it was a gigantic explosion. His description matches exactly what we unfortunately hear about in Israel, but people who live through terrorist attack when a bomb goes off. Uh, he said it was a flash, and only later he heard the sound, and all his family was killed, and it was a terrible business, and uh, as you can imagine, the, the building collapsed and killed people and fell upon him, and he made a famous vow, if you get me out of this, O Lord, I will devote my to- myself to serious learning. Not like he wasn't doing serious learning beforehand, but you were talking to people at a high level. And so he said, I'll really learn, learn, learn. And as he writes, when the dust cleared, there was a miraculous path open for him among all the dead and the uh, broken wood and the collapsed buildings. He got out and he devoted himself to that, obviously. And... Therefore, he's a very interesting person. He then remarried a girl of similar type, and he went on to have a career. I can't go into all the details, even though they're all interesting. There's a lot of lush and horror involved also, but uh, because they have a lot of quarrels he was involved in. But uh, he went from town to town as a rabbi here and a rabbi there, and eventually attained this very great reputation as one of the super lamdans, because that's what he was. And after a while... Let's put it this way. He couldn't stay in Poland because there were too many fights. He moved to Germany. And he was a rabbi in all the big kahillas in Germany, in Berlin, and then in Metz, and then in um, Frankfurt. This is what you did if you were a big Tomahawk in Eastern Europe in the 18th century. The communities in Germany could pay bigger salaries, and the things seemed to be more stable there politically. And so people, very fam- many, many famous rabbis, the Nodeby Huda, the Shagasari, I mean, you name it, where all 18th century rabbis moved from Poland to take positions in Germany, usually not in a in a uh, happy way. <laughs> and so the result is that uh, he also had this kind of career in which he was in very distinguished Kehillahs, but like I say, he didn't last long because when he saw something he didn't like and he called it out, the leader of the Kehillah got real angry, and next thing you know, he was gone. He also got very heavily involved 
in the big fight that was going at that time about Rionis and Apeshitz. We've all heard about the Emden Apeshitz controversy. I imagine most of you know what I'm talking about when I speak about that, Rabbi Yaakov Emden and Yonis and Apeshitz. But the truth of the matter is, it was really a Pnei Yeshua, Yonis and Apeshitz controversy. The Pnei Yeshua was the main one who was accusing Rionis and Apeshitz of Sabatianism, and he was very heavily involved in all this uh, sort of business. And yet, even the, when the, he was thrown out of towns, people held him in the very highest esteem. And in the last place in Frankfurt, where he was a rabbi for many years, he was at the same time very controversial, but also very highly regarded. I'm a Cohen, so it matters to me these kind of questions. He was involved in a very famous uh, issue. Well, it'll be famous in a minute anyway, uh, about Kohanim in the Frankfurt ghetto, because the way the buildings used to be built in those days is it's all one long set of row houses. And those of you out there are not Kohanim don't even have to know about this, but if there's a dead body in one building, you know, it, it, it might possibly be that everybody in all the row houses, if you're a Kohen, you have to leave. And just imagine, for example, such childs have popped up. If someone dies on a Shabbos and they can't remove the body till after Shabbos, does that mean if I'm a Kohen, I have to leave the house and stand out in the cold, you know, for the next uh, 24 hours or something like that? And uh, he was very, very involved in finding a heter and a way around having to do with the sewage pipes uh, in Frankfurt, which was a very controversial psaac. He was not afraid of controversial psaacs. So this is a very strong-minded individual and a very uh, person of unbending rectitude, as we would say today. I would only, I'd have to go in a minute, so I would only point out a very famous story, the um, Chidor, the famous Sephardic rabbi, who lived at that time, was famous for making a, a tour of the Ashkenazi communities in Europe, among other places, uh, because he was a shliach for the Jewish communities in Eretz Yisrael, raising money. That's how he did it in those days. And he stopped in, um, not Frankfurt, but in Worms. And he stayed at the Pnei Yeshua's house. The reason it was Worms is because the Pnei Yeshua got involved in the Emden Abish's fight, and he called it the way he saw it. And uh, some of the, one of the factions in the town didn't like him, and they forced him out. And he went, and he moved to another town called Worms, you know, where Rashi learned. And that's where the Peneshua met him. He was on wife number three. The first wife was killed in the gun blast. The second wife died from an illness many years later in 1751. And this was the third wife, uh, Gittel. And they weren't married that long. And they were both not young when they got married. And uh, the, the Chida records, they says that uh, the Rav, the Peneshua, invited me to his house for Shabbos. I came Friday night. It was unbelievable, he says. The food was unbelievable, and the Divrei Torah was even more unbelievable, and it was a constant flow. You can imagine two big gedolim spending Friday night together, and they're talking, learning, and each one saying over something. And when the Pnei Yeshua said some vard over, or you know, some Divrei Torah, his wife, Mrs. Pnei Yeshua, who had been married with him only five years now, uh, actually at that time a year or two, said, "Doske Feltman, that's a good vard." And the Pnei Yeshua said. To his guest, the Chido, I said, "See, because you, my finally, because <laughs> here's the chus, my fi- my wife fa- finally liked one of my divertors. Usually, she <laughs> she doesn't approve of them, which shows you could all them are people too. There's a lot more to say in the subject, as there always is. But as I said, we're all in a hurry. At least I am, and so have a good day. And as neshama should be as a chus for everybody." For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.com.
www.rabbidavidkatz.com.